Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. First, let's just unpack the fact that you've just dropped probably the most important lesson in life, which is that your body has intelligent design and it is constantly sending you signals. Mm -hmm. And when something shrinks you, depletes you, makes you feel like you're hiding, that is a hugely important signal to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And one of the simple secrets in life is spend more time with people and doing experiences that expand you or energize you. And you also said something important. It has nothing to do with whether or not something is easy or something is difficult and has everything to do with the kind of energy that you feel when you're either in that experience or you are with those people that are meant for you. And so that's number one. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm pretty intense. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today, I have Mel Robbins, and I have been listening to Mel Robbins speak for so long. She's so clear, so articulate, so passionate, and and has really lived it. Uh, She's a former attorney. Uh, She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is called The High Five Habit. So of course, we talked about the high five and the power of the high five, and there's so much science behind it. There's been so many studies between everything from sports teams to kids kids, to classrooms, you name it. There's been so many different examples of the power of the high five. But in general, we just talked so much about you know, getting to see ourselves in our, in our life, being able to see ourselves in our patterns, being able to see ourselves in our relationships and our work and ultimately choosing us and how we treat ourselves and what we can do to uh, wake up. And um, really, it ultimately ends up leading to just more happiness, more joy, and more contentment in this life, which is something I think we're all looking for more of. Um, But Mel comes from a place where she's lived it. She lived it. She was broke and about a million dollars in debt only like six years ago, and she pulled herself out. And it's just super inspiring, uh, which is why she's able to speak about it with such conviction and such knowledge. So enjoy the show. You've been working. Um, Today, I'm good. I um, completely overdid it and, um, you know, kind of fucked myself over, honestly, from a health perspective, because I, in like 10 weeks, did 70 plus podcast interviews, crisscrossed the country, three keynotes, went to Europe for a book. Like I just overdid it. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. And so my body shut down and said, 
we're done here. And it was right in the middle of an audible production, which was not great because I hate letting people, you know, you know, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you have uh, played at the highest levels in everything that you've done. And when I'm sick, it's one thing, but when I get sick and worn down and it actually impacts other people's kind of schedules and stuff, that really bums me out. But I'm good now. I'm really good now. How are you? That's an admirable trait though. A lot of, you know, I don't think everyone thinks like that. And <clears throat> there's a certain point, especially with your level of success where people can feel like they're, they're the important one and in charge and who cares about everybody else. And so I think that's a really grounded and like solid perspective to have. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get it. You're right. I mean, I'm, I'm good. I feel like I, you know, when I retired, I'm like, I want to do less, but I also got to do more of what I wanted. So, you know, it keeps you in a, an energized space. I learned towards the end of my career that the things that drained me weren't for me and the things that gave me energy were definitely in alignment. And it didn't even mean that the workload was the same. It could have been like minuscule amounts of things that I didn't want to do that would be like exponentially draining. And then on the other side, it could be something that was a high volume amount of work, work, um, but it energized me and left me feeling almost high from it. And you're, you, you know, you start to realize how important the things when things are in alignment. And I think that, you know, that was a lesson I learned, but, um, but I'm good now. I'm good. But also, you know, as you're talking about this and, you know, you're obviously doing things you're passionate about, you're talking about, I mean, like I've listened to you for so long and, you know, your, your speaking is so articulate and to the point. And I love that you swear and who cares about anyone who complains about that? I love it. And it's like a way to get across the message. Um, and you're so clear, um, but, you know, there's also a season for things. So, you know, you write a book and you're passionate about the message, but it, 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 it's like, it doesn't mean that there aren't some other things that go along with it. And it's like, you know, what are your thoughts about like, you know, some, it's just a season for stuff. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, yeah. Okay. So first let's just unpack the fact that you've just dropped probably the most important lesson in life, <laughs> which is that your body has intelligent design and it is constantly sending you signals. Mm -hmm. And when something shrinks you, depletes you, makes you feel like you're hiding, uh, that is a hugely important signal to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And one of the simple secrets in life is spend more time with people and doing experiences that expand you or energize you. And you also said something important. It has nothing to do with whether or not something is easy or something is difficult and has everything to do with the kind of energy that you feel when you're either in that experience or you are with those people that are meant for you. And so that's number one uh, in terms of just such an important takeaway. And it took me a really fucking long time to, to realize that, that a lot of why my life was so hard is because I was spending time either with people that depleted me or in situations that depleted me or in a job that depleted me. And, you know, I can remember like it was yesterday being 29 years old 
and being here in Boston. And we had just moved here and I could not get a job. I used, I, I had been a public defender uh, working for legal aid in New York City, straight out of law school. And then we moved to Boston for my husband's for my husband to go to business school. And I was not a member of the bar, so I couldn't practice law in a courtroom. So the only job I could get was in a law firm, which is the exact opposite from walking into a courtroom and representing people. I was walking into a high rise and into an office and then sitting at a desk all day, researching and writing. I'm highly dyslexic. It's really hard for me to focus my brain that way. I would be sitting on that commuter rail with almost like a visceral hangover feeling of mm. don't go, don't go. Like my whole body, you know, when you're in a relationship or you're sleeping with somebody or you're walking into a job that doesn't feel right. And too many of us, and especially women, we stay in these situations. Like it's some kind of obligation to endure it or to fix somebody else so it feels better. And, you know, I went into that job every single day for more than a year. And then I got pregnant, thank God, because while <laughs> I was on maternity leave, I not only had massive postpartum depression, mm -hmm. but when I finally got stabilized from the postpartum depression, I had this awakening that was visceral. I said to my husband, I can't go back to work. I cannot do it. The idea of walking in there now that I've been separated from it is making me physically ill. Mm -hmm. And then he said, well, no problem. We've just bought this house. Uh, we can't afford it unless you're working. So you got to go make $60,000. So now I had a problem. I had four weeks before I had to walk back into that job and I mm -hmm. had to find a job that made $60,000. And boy, did I get to work. And I think if you frame life change often, particularly like getting a job or like a problem to solve. Sometimes it makes it easier to figure yeah. out how to solve it. Some motivation mm -hmm. to get by, even though getting by for one versus the other is totally different. I believe that we're stepping into an age where we're going to learn how to tap into our body and like really be able to sense truth and truths and lies and indicators. We're just, we're just going to be more in touch physically with how our outside reality makes us feel to be a guide for us. <clears throat> I think that's what's going to be called of us in this day and age where we can't even, we don't even know if we're watching the news and it's true or false. We just, we don't know anything. What is real? What is not? Um, why is it? What, why is it that we don't listen to those cues? We don't, we don't listen to that little voice inside that has that quick little like, you know, or like, mm -mm, well, even, or I, I, the answer is simple. You've been trained not to. How, what, what is it that trains us not to? Childhood. What are the aspects that we overlook in our life that we do on a repetitive basis that go, not the body, not the intuition out here. You were trained as a child that if you did <laughs> what your instincts told you to do, that you would get in trouble. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Or somebody would be mad at you. Like that's how you parent children.
hmm. through threats and intimidation. I mean, come on, I'm a parent. Like that's how mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah, <laughs> but, I, but not really because, you know, as a kid, you want to keep the peace. You want to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, like it goes back to survival. You are hardwired to be part of a pack and the pack that you're born into for better or for worse is the one that you're wired in your DNA to stay connected to. And so what happens is, you know, we can talk about the range of having a household that's safe, where you're just worried about your mom being upset. You're just worried about dad not yelling. And it's all subconscious. You're just reading the cues. And so, you know, all you want to do is dance and play. And that's what your intuition is telling you and to play your records and to make, and it's like, can you shut up? It's been, you know, and so you learn to stop listening to what's in your heart and soul Mm. and to prioritize reading the cues. Mm. And then that only gets reinforced when you go to school, when it becomes part of your, uh, your, your biological and your, your growth evolution to form friendships. And so your brain has this moment where it goes from accepting and loving you exactly as you are to suddenly your brain turns into the sorting hat from Harry Potter. (laughs) And now you look around and instead of seeing a world that you want to explore, you see the groups you belong to and the groups that you don't. And your mind is doing this as a way to protect you. It's all evolutionary stuff. Yeah. in terms of keeping you safe. And so instead of going to sit with the sports kids or, you know, the kids that look different than you or the kids that are artsy, you start to go, oh, well, I can't go there because I don't have nice clothes. And I can't go there because I don't look like those kids. And I can't go there because, and you start to literally talk yourself out of following the pull of your heart. I can't possibly go out for the play because all the kids will, you know, question my sexuality if I'm a guy. I can't possibly quit the football team because my dad is going to be pissed off at me. Life taught you to stop listening to your own instincts. Mm -hmm. And part of the, one of the greatest opportunities of your life as an adult, because once you're 18, you get to say, You have way more control than you think you do. You get to say what job you want to go and pursue. You get to say what you want to do for a living. You get to say who you're going to love and how you're going to live your life. And one of the greatest gifts of your adulthood is coming back home to yourself and learning how to remove the crap that has been put on top of your intuition the anxiety, the people pleasing, the imposter syndrome, the penalties, the penalties. You know, there are some, like, let's take an example of somebody who grows up in a wildly uh, conservative religious household who is gay. And being themselves means that your family kicks you out. Yeah. Your entire existence is something you're hiding. Your identity is what you're hiding because the messaging at you and the consequences as a child were so severe. And so, you know, people experience this. There's not a single adult who has not had life or abuse or trauma or some situation scream at you. You can't be you. 
It's not, or, or you got to change if you want me to like you. You got to change if you want mom to be happy. You got to not be totally yourself if you want dad to love you. Mm-hmm. And then if you've had issues like abandonment or you've had issues like discrimination or abuse, the experience of those things makes you as a child question there. Well, there's got to be something wrong with me. Because if there weren't something wrong with me, my father would still be here at the house. Mm. If there weren't something wrong with me, I wouldn't have been abused like this. This is sort of what the child brain does. It turns it back at you. And so this is what every adult needs to repair in order to tap back into the wisdom that is inside you and to hear what your intuition and your soul is trying to tell you. And the other reason why it's very hard for people to hear is because you're so busy. You're so busy running from one thing to the next. You're kind of on autopilot. You're doing this thing. You're not even present. And so it requires a slowing down. And that's one of the greatest gifts of the pandemic, I think, for a lot of people. That's why you're seeing the great resignation and so many people quitting their jobs. That's why you're seeing uh, divorces skyrocket. That's why you're seeing people really have a reckoning with themselves about what's working, what's not working, because the pandemic hit the pause button and you didn't have anywhere that you could go. You couldn't run to Target or to get a uh, cup of coffee with a friend in order to just be busy. You had to stay put. Very, very well said. We could just stop there and that's enough information for people to feast on and just like <laughs> go with, right? Because there's 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 two parts. The first is your is your <clears throat> familial situation. It's your it's your upbringing. It's your childhood trauma and patterning. And then the other part is uh, culture and you know what your environment is and how <clears throat> everything is designed to distract you um, and take you out of your relationship with your inner self, your inner child, whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, and, 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 and place fear. I think that's been a big part of kind of this last couple of years is there's just so much fear propaganda or fear porn as they would call it, you know, it's Uh just, it's, and it's, and it's crippling for, for, for so many people. Um, so let's start with the first one, which I think is the, the one that, uh, we, we have control over both of them, but I think it's almost the hardest one. And that's your own, your own programming from childhood. I mean, I'm fascinated with psychology and fascinated with why we are the way we are. And it's taken me into my late thirties to really get a grasp on sort of the patterns in my life showing up and the, um, you know, childhood traumas that happen with mom, with dad, and what we're, what we're looking for to resolve and then how we act ourselves. And it's all in the, it's all in the parents. And so, you know, I think that's one of them. I think that's probably one of the most important things that I have dealt with personally is just taking a step forward into those, those realities. And maybe the most important thing my therapist said to me was that no one holds the keys. It was like, I wanted to, once I started unpacking it, it was like, I wanted to blame mom or dad, apologize, and then everything will be okay. And it's like, that doesn't make it okay. You have to, you have to come to terms with it. And once you do, you actually don't need them to do anything for you. But the truth of the matter is, is that our childhood plays an enormous role on what, how we act in the world 
and what we judge and what, what we are, what we end up projecting against mm-hmm. and what triggers mm-hmm. us. I can give you an analogy. So, um, I think it's really important when you decide that you're going to change your habits and change the patterns of behavior that make you feel stuck or that you can't stand anymore that are the result of surviving trauma. You got to be compassionate with yourself and patient because a great analogy for the patterns that you learned that you're now stuck with right now, it feels like as an adult is this, you spent how many years as a race car driver? How many years? How many? 27 years. Imagine if when you retired, I said, okay, you're going to play football now. (laughs) And I expect you to be the best. That's tall order. I mean, that's an overwhelming proposal, you know? Yes. It's going to take years for you to learn a brand new sport. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take small daily practice and studying and being patient with yourself to build new muscles and skills. And the truth is you might never fully build new muscles and skills. It might never come easily or naturally, but over time you could learn to be an excellent football player. But what you have to have compassion for is the fact that for the first 27 years, you were not playing football, you were driving a race car. And those are very different patterns. So if you're going to go from a situation where you have a pattern of withdrawing into yourself or lying or snapping at people or whatever your pattern is in response to uncertainty, it's literally the equivalent of teaching yourself to go from being a professional race car driver Mm. to a professional football player. Mm, Foreign. Just feels foreign. Totally different skills, totally different neural pathways. And so when you kind of understand that, that you can do it, but it's going to take time. And I think one of the things that was the most eye-opening thing that I have ever learned was this. Um, And I only learned this recently. One of the reasons why behavior change is so frustrating and it's so hard and you got to use all these tools in order to trick your brain and to plow new neural pathways in and to form new habits The reason why it's so hard is because when you and I are talking about changing our behavior or we're talking about trauma pattern or we're talking about the shit that we do that we'd want to change or we're really frustrated by, we're using the conscious part of our brain. We're using the prefrontal cortex. Talking about behavior change is easy to do. The reason why it's so difficult is you and I can sit here and talk about it and we can make a plan for it and we can say, okay, the next time that that you're in a situation where your husband gives you that look, and then you start to worry that, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah is going to happen. And you feel the rage come up in your body. Like what used to drive me bananas is my husband would ask me a ton of questions. And in my opinion, they're obvious, stupid questions. And so, you know, I of course feel like a royal asshole now because we've come to find out that my husband has been struggling with long-term depression. And one of the reasons why he has a brain, you know, why his brain is so foggy is because of depression. And it didn't help that he was smoking a ton of weed all the time too. And so, you know, I would literally get so frustrated because he would, we'd be talking about something and he would be like, 
uh, well, I don't know. What do you, what, what do you think? Like just asking mm. questions that I'm like, you should know the answer to that. Why <laughs> uh, have you heard of Google? Why are you asking me what the weather is going to be, you know, tomorrow in Vermont fucking Google? Like, you know, like, and I'd go like, ah, and I hated that about myself, hated it. And I would talk to my therapist. I can't snap at him. I don't want, like, I, 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 I need to be more patient. You know, this is what my mom did. Like she would get frustrated with my father and now I'm doing it with Chris and I don't want to be that person. Oh my God. I would talk about this topic probably for years. And I would make a plan to become, and I'd make a plan to put myself in pause. And then the next day or two, I'd get back in my life and we'd be standing there having a conversation. And he would ask me a question that I think he should have Googled or should know the answer to. And then the rage would come. And it wasn't until I learned the fact that I was talking about the behavior that I wanted to change with this part of my brain. But the rage and the impatience and the kind of like, ah, the kind of like emotional reactiveness, that pattern is stored here Mm. in the basal ganglia. That pattern operates in my subconscious. And that pattern is not initiated by thinking. That pattern is initiated by emotions that rise up in the body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you realize that the behavior change, particularly when it comes to generational patterns and trauma patterns, that in order to catch it, You've got to not only figure out the pattern you want to change, but you've got to figure out the situations and the emotions that you're feeling in your body that correspond to the pattern Mm -hmm. that you want to change. Because when I start to feel my ankles getting hot, Mm. I know that that feeling in my body, that emotion of frustration, that is the trigger. And the reason why I have this pattern, this is fascinating, is that, you know, a lot of these patterns you learned like zero to two. Yeah. I think they say zero to six, like last trimester to about six years old is the bulk of the subconscious programming, which is 95% of your operating system. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And they, they, they have this, there's this phenomenon in psychology called ghosts in the nursery. Which mean, and I'll give you an explanation. Um, so let's say there we're we're looking at uh, 18-month-old Mel Robbins. An 18-month-old Mel Robbins is sitting on the kitchen floor. And I've got the Tupperware drawer open, and 18-month-old Mel Robbins is lost because I'm following my soul and I am playing with the Tupperware and I got this stuff all over and I've made a big mess and I'm just like happy as a little clam. And then all of a sudden around the corner, like my mom comes and she's walking around the corner, doesn't see me and slips and like, ah, and just reacts. What happens in my nervous system is that her frustration with the mess and the blow up and the fact that I have a (gasps) disruption in my nervous system because I'm startled. I literally sear her behavior with my emotional reaction. 
So frustration gets encoded in me. I don't even remember it. I'm 18 months old. Yeah. Frustration is always this emotional feeling in my body. And now I'm just literally copying the behavior yeah. I saw in the adults. You're kind of a passenger me. at that point in time. It's almost Correct. Correct. And so because emotions rise up before your thoughts take hold, yeah. it's super important to pay attention to your body. Is it a, is it a twitch in the stomach? Is it a clench in the, you know, my husband says that when he feels kind of his pattern of withdrawing kick in, he first feels like his chest tightened. Mm-hmm. That's what he feels. That's, that's how he knows one of those patterns from his past and his yeah. subconscious that he doesn't want as an adult is about to spin. Mm -hmm. And so if he can catch it here, he can say, oh, here it goes. I'm about to withdraw five, four, three, two, one. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose something different. Mm -hmm. And so that's been wildly helpful. And it allowed me to go, oh, I get it. This is why it's not that I'm a moron. It's that I'm talking about the behavior I want to change with one part of my brain, but the behavior itself is somewhere else. So I got to fight it yeah. in the region that it's in. And it's right. also really important. You can't just catch it. You can't just interrupt it. You must replace it with a new pattern of behavior because patterns repeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to reprogram yourself. And a question I have too, because this is uh, something I use as an indicator um, I'll use my own personal example. It's, um, you know, if somebody is uh, to, to reflect on you when he's, he should have looked up something simple and obvious, just Google it, whatever. For me, it's like, I judge lazy people. So I'm like, God, like, really just like, you're complaining about that. You haven't done anything or you, you know, you're just sitting around. Don't you want to do something? And so I realized too, that yes, of course, there's part of my childhood programming, but I wasn't allowed to do those things. And so therefore in my adulthood, I don't do those things. Meaning like, I'm not, I don't, I can't be lazy. It's hard for me to be lazy. I don't know how to be lazy. It's like programmed in me. And so another indicator that I use is like what I judge, I deny on some level. And so I bet that you're the kind of person that would never ask a stupid question. You'd Google it first. You do your homework, you do your research. And then if you couldn't figure it out, you'd, you know, present the presented and be like, I, I did everything. I, I couldn't find it. Do you know, you wouldn't just go, Hey, you know, what's the weather tomorrow? You'd be like, I mean, you would have looked right. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You I know, it's it interesting. It makes me wonder, um, given that it was sort of like just drilled into your head, work, 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 work. Do you find it really difficult to even like relax on a vacation? Um, I think that in the past, my vacations were like, it took a couple days to kind of get to the, to down regulate enough mm -hmm. to enjoy it, which is why I would never take less than five day vacations because by the time I came down for the three days, I was already thinking I only had two left. <laughs> so like at least seven gave me like a couple to come down. I'm like, oh man, I got so many days left. And then you have a couple good days. And then there's still the ramp up of knowing you need to get going again. Um, I'm better now. Um, so, but I, I would say that, you know, it took a long time to do something simple, like just sit on the couch and watch TV. 
I would always think I'd have to be doing something, maybe even just like, is it a fun show? Am I being entertaining? Am I asking good questions? Is it like there had to be a little added layer to it? So I'd say that watching TV and just resting and letting that be enough and be in silence, especially if somebody's there, is like something that took a little while for me to to, to be able to do comfortably. Well, one of the things that I've uh, learned recently about myself is that because I don't you I wouldn't the lazy word caught my attention. Mm. And what I've unpacked for myself is that I am always doing something because like so many people, I got the most positive attention when I was achieving. And so I married achievement mm -hmm. with being worthy of love. And I know that if I, I know that I never slowed down and I was constantly onto the next thing because if I wasn't up to something that was worth talking about, it must have meant that I wasn't worth loving either. Mm -hmm. And it was in the doing and the achieving that I anchored my worth. And it's only, again, recently that I've really been able to see that and pull it apart and realize that, you know, the things that I do have to be separate from whether or not I view myself as worthy or lovable or likable, that as a person based on who I am and just my existence alone, you got to anchor it there mm -hmm. and let the things that you're doing just be additive mm -hmm. to you enjoying your life. How did you figure it out? Uh, it was the high five habit, honestly. Like I, like I didn't figure it out till I was 52 years old and it was a, like a, holy shit. I cannot mm -hmm. believe for how long I have tortured myself. I have just drilled myself. Um, you know, you asked at the very beginning if, you know, what my thoughts are on us needing seasons. And, you know, I live in a four season climate. I love the change of seasons. And one of the most important things about uh, winter is that when you think about how, what winter is for, it's a period where everything falls off the trees and all that stuff that dies and falls to the ground becomes what nourishes and uh, feeds the things that are going to grow mm -hmm. in the spring. And without the winter and without the freeze and without the dying off of the growth from last year, you wouldn't have the new growth. And so I deeply believe not only in seasons where you need to rest and seasons where things need to die and fall off and seasons where things need to, you know, be reborn or to grow again anew. But I think that you can start a new one anytime you decide to. And that that's also a really amazing aspect of kind of finally waking up and realizing you're in control of a lot more than you realize that you are. You can choose what you think about. It, it's not easy. Yeah. The process is simple, but it's not easy because you're fighting against patterns, but you can make a decision to change your life. You can make a decision to change uh, what you value. You can make a decision to change who you hang out with. You can make a decision to change what you do for a living. Yeah. These are all things within your control. They don't come from wishing about them. Yeah. They're going to come from work. Yeah. 
it's kind of that day one or one day kind of thing. And, and, and I've thought about this because I know you talk about this and, and, and I love the attitude of like, just, it just make the decision count to five, five second rule, just do it. Right. Um, which is gr- uh, such a great practice. Um, but I, I was thinking about that and I'm also, I also do think that there's some meat to the fact that there's stuff that leads up to going, ah, I can't take it anymore. I'm making a change. You have an epiphany, something hits hard enough, you're over it. Like you just hit a breaking point and something does change in a moment. It Uh always changes in a moment and it's up to you to get to that moment. So what can we do to get to that moment with routines, practices, disciplines? How do we get there? Because there's got to be, there's always something that leads up to it. Well, um, one thing that I've learned in life is that your breakdowns are just going to keep getting bigger (laughs) until you wake the fuck up and get the lesson (laughs) that the universe is sending. I mean, period. Uh, It took me a long time to see that I had a very uh, painful pattern of being drawn to really big personality people who were really fun and edgy and just like, wow, like a shiny object. And then, you know, when you're having fun with this kind of person and you're laughing all the time and they're really edgy and you start to realize, oh my God, they're actually kind of mean to people or they're, they lie or they do this. Now all of a sudden I get scared because I don't know how to back away. And time and time and time and time, like I can go all the way back to uh, friends in elementary school, to uh, a babysitter that I once hired, to business uh, associates back in the day, to like just there they are, there they are, there they are, there they are, there they are. And it wasn't until I had a massive issue happened with one of them, it was super painful that made me go, holy shit, this is a pattern. This person has been showing up in your life since you were nine years old and you have not learned it. And now you have a very expensive and a very messy and a very awful situation to clean up with somebody that you couldn't draw boundaries with, period, Mm -hmm. because you were so worried about upsetting anybody or disappointing, like you're people pleasing. And so one thing to understand is your life is the greatest school you're ever going to attend. And it's always sending you messages. Preach. And I hope you're not as stubborn as I am because it took me 41 years to see the lesson about toxic behavior that I was attracted to yeah. and toxic behavior that I engaged in, in my own people pleasing and inability to draw a line and like distance myself or mm-hmm. end relationships mm-hmm. that really didn't work. And I know they don't work because I get that feeling in my stomach. And then I see myself twisting myself in knots so as to not upset somebody who's basically crazy. Yeah. And I'm now like turning all around to not upset the person that is, you know, I'm afraid of their reaction because they're not regulated in terms of their emotions. And so it took me a long time. And so I want every, I want you to understand if you're listening to this, that if you're in a frustrating situation, I want you to ask yourself, number one, when in my life have I felt like this before? 
And who has made me feel like this? What situations have made me feel like this? And start listing them. And when you see one, you'll see another and then another and then another. And then there's that boss. And then there's a situation. And then you'll ask yourself, what is it that I'm doing that is having me show up in this situation again? And so I identified kind of the, the personality pattern that I was drawn to fun, unpredictable, like all, oh, you know, life of the party, like kind of like just, woo, this feels fun. And this feels on edge because I can't predict what's going to happen because this person's so entertaining only to realize, holy shit, the same thing that drew me in is what's scaring me now and turning me into a massive people pleaser that makes me go crazy. And so I, if you can identify that, then you ask yourself, what is the lesson that life is trying to teach me? Mm -hmm. This person is being sent into my life to teach me a lesson. And for me, the lesson, again, back to your original question, why can't we listen to our instincts? How many of us have started dating or sleeping with somebody that we knew? We knew. We knew we shouldn't have been dating or sleeping with. And then we keep going back, even though we knew that this is not a person that we should be with. And we like turn into somebody else reckoning with our, and this person is being sent into your life for a reason, because you have a pattern that you need to break. And so when you can identify those three things, kind of when in my life have I felt this way before, what are the circumstances or people I've been around? What am I doing that I can see contributes to me getting into these situations? Mm -hmm. And what is this trying to teach me? Mm -hmm. And when you can look at it that way, that's how you unpack awful situations or confronting situations and you look for the lesson in them. And mm -hmm. if you don't figure out the freaking lessons you're meant to learn in this lifetime, you're, you will just keep Coming getting back. them. <laughs> That's it. That is it. And so, you know, that's one thing that I have learned recently. Um, and then the other thing that I have learned, and, you know, it's what I wrote about in the high five habit is this notion that, you know, there's only one person that you spend your whole life with and it's yourself. And I had this epiphany uh, in April of 2020, when I walked into the bathroom one morning, and, you know, there's a lot of shit going on in my life and it doesn't even matter what the details were, because I think everybody's had that experience where you're in a season of your life that's just overwhelming mm -hmm. and you don't feel capable or like you have one shred of energy left to face this shit. Mm. And I remember standing there in the bathroom and I had this epiphany one morning where I realized, oh my God, there are always two human beings in the bathroom every morning. There's you and there's a human being in the mirror. That's not your reflection. If you allow yourself to really look past the body in the mirror and through the eyes, you will see you will see a human, you'll see your soul. And that woman that's staring back at you in the mirror, she is trying. 
She is so beaten down by you. She is so sick of your criticism. She needs you to wake up and start supporting her and to start being kinder to her. She's doing her best. And kind of this epiphany that I was relentless in my criticism of myself, Mm. even just 18 months ago, Mm. even having turned my life around built this business, got our family out of the million dollars in debt, got the liens off the house, which, you know, they were there six years ago, the liens from the million dollars in debt that my husband and I were in because of the restaurant business. And despite the fact that I've impacted millions of people's lives, despite the fact that I have three kids that are okay, you know, they're healthy, they, you know, are facing their stuff, they're doing their thing, they're going to school, despite the fact that I've, I've been, you know, married for 25 years and we still work on it ever. Like, despite the fact that I got a roof, I look in the mirror and I see a woman that I hated, that wasn't enough, that, that was doing everything wrong. I was relentlessly focused on what wasn't working instead of all of the things that were going right And when I had this epiphany that, oh my God, like there's this poor lady in the mirror every morning who just wants me to see her and wants me to start being kinder to her and needs my support, my whole life switched. Like I had life inverted in so many ways because, you know, I was kind of, it sounds like you, like I was brought up, I I wasn't in in an abusive household at all. I was in like your normal kind of like, you know, happy household, whatever. Um, my parents have their own shit from their childhoods and everybody does. And so, you know, I though kind of had that, that sense of, okay, tough love, man, push yourself. You got to muscle through it. And I think between the constant criticizing that you do of yourself to try to fit in and the fact that that then gets reinforced by experiences in your life. I just adopted a habit that everybody has rejecting myself, not accepting myself, constantly badgering myself for the things that weren't going right instead of the million things that are. And when I reverse this and started to add in habits around empowering myself, cheering for myself, forgiving myself, giving myself some grace, being a little kinder to myself, focusing on what's working instead of harping on what's not. It is bananas how much my experience of life changed. Good job, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I'm, it's hard to get to that point where we actually acknowledge our inner monologue as being important and even notice it instead of being on the wheel of the same shit we say to ourselves in our head every day when we are in the workplace or with our partner or looking in the mirror and we say the same shit every day, right? I I do. And we're harder on ourselves. It's like, I love, I love, you know, there's, I think maybe it was untethered soul, but talking about the way that you talk to yourself Like you would never be friends with your inner monologue. Never. Like who would ever be friends with the stuff that we say to ourselves in our head? 
Um, <clears throat> so what I hear a lot of is I hear accountability in this practice of saying, I'm going to treat myself, my inner child. Like to me, it was, you know, and I hear that, I don't know what you call it, but if it were me looking in the mirror saying that as my inner child going, I fucking love you. Like you're beautiful. You're amazing. Why are you so hard on me? Like yourself? Why? Why? Um, Cause you were trained also, to be hard on yourself. That's yeah, the answer. Like yeah. I, like I literally, the thing that's so profound about this for me is that when you realize this is just a pattern of thinking that your mom has with herself, your dad has with himself, every human being is trained to beat themselves up mm -hmm. and you can make a decision to stop mm -hmm. doing it. And it is a conscious decision that you have to intentionally make and then manage all day long. And what's amazing though about your brain is because your brain is designed to learn patterns, the switch is very quick. It's easier in my opinion to change the default patterns in your brain than to kind of smooth out the trauma that is remembered in your nervous system. Oh, anyway. sure. Seeing it for the first time takes forever. Changing yeah. it is the quick yep. part. That's why yep. when people learn the shit, I'm like, you're actually a lot further than you think. Yeah, totally. And so the cool thing is that when you get to work on your thinking patterns, it happens super, it can happen super fast. In mm -hmm. fact, that's why I'm so excited about the idea and the research behind adding a high five in the mirror every morning to your morning routine. And the reason why it is such a powerful habit when it comes to your inner monologue is because you're unlocking neuroassociation and programming that is already in your brain, in your nervous system, in your chemistry, and you're now going to aim it back at yourself. Uh -huh. And you're going to aim it back at yourself as a way to delete the critic in your head and to replace it with what you need, which is an encouraging voice. And by simply physically raising your hand, don't even say anything, just physically raise your hand and high five the woman you see in the mirror every morning after you brush your teeth. What happens is all the positive programming that's triggered by the physical hand gesture of high fiving, it literally gets triggered right here in your subconscious. So the funny thing is, is that you can be standing there, you're using your prefrontal cortex. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this stupid high five thing. As you go to raise your hand and you think Danica and Mel are the dumbest things. I, this, I cannot believe I'm doing this shit. <laughs> and then as you get close to the mirror, something weird happens. Your mind goes silent mm. because your brain is triggered by the high five gesture mm. and pulls programming from your subconscious. This is positive programming your subconscious. Yeah. You've never high-fived somebody and thought, I hate you. I hope you lose. Today's a terrible day. Right. You've only high-fived people when you're like, I see you. I love you. Keep going. You got this. We can win. I believe in you. It's celebratory. You. Yeah, I respect you. So when you do it to yourself, the subconscious programming overrides the critic. Mm -hmm. It's insane. You will likely laugh the first time you do it because your brain then gives you a drip of dopamine. The other thing that you will feel is you'll feel a slight little kind of like, oh, I got, okay, okay, this, this weird, but that sort of little energy boost 
comes because your nervous system is encoded with celebratory energy. When your team mm. scores, you throw your hands in the air. When you're uh, yell surprise at a birthday party, hands in the air. When you cross a finish line, hands in the air. When you wave hello, hands in the air. When you high five somebody, hands in the air. And so when you high five yourself, positive subconscious programming, drip of dopamine boosts your mood and the celebratory energy in your nervous system gives you a little jolt. And that's mm -hmm. not all. Your brain is watching and your brain sees you treating yourself yep. like a person who cares about you. That leverages behavioral activation therapy because you are now acting like somebody who cares about themselves. And we've done this thing called the high five challenge where I think it's been live for about 48 days. We've had 145,000 people take it. It's a five-day online experience where I coach you every day in a video. There's 145,000 people in it from 91 countries. We have the data because it's hosted on an app. It's 100% free and people are joining it every single day. And we have measured the results. Not a single person that's taken it has said this hasn't worked. Not a single one. Unreal. We are getting uh, people talking about how it's spreading through AA meetings because there's so much shame and there's such a sense of failure when there's things in your life that you regret. And so, you know, one of the reasons why it's so powerful as a tool for forgiveness is so many people, 50% of men and women don't or can't look at themselves in the mirror because they don't like the person that they are, or they are disgusted with where they are in life. 91% of people don't like how they look. And so when they look in the mirror, they pick apart or fixate on what they don't like. These are habits of self-rejection. It's so like giving yourself wired. the middle finger every time. That's, it's like the high five is the opposite of what we normally do, which is basically look in the mirror and go like this, which is kind of what we right. like, oh, your hair is not that, you know, and you're kind of a little fat here and you're like, you're kind of looking a little old there and with gray hair, like, or, you know, just you're a failure. You don't, don't do anything. You don't deserve to get ready and even try today. No one's going to care. You don't care. It's a yeah. giant, giant middle finger to yourself most days. Every day. The opposite of it. The yeah. high five is and the opposite of it. What I'm fascinated by also is I is the physical touch aspect. Mm. How mm -hmm. does that play into things? Well, um, there's a tremendous amount of research about the power of a high five when somebody else gives you one. Mm -hmm. And there, and it's because there's a transfer of energy from one person to the other. And what they know based on research, because there's two studies that people tend to fixate on once they read the book. And the first one is the study that they did with MBA teams, where researchers at the University of Berkeley looked at uh, championship MBA teams. And they wondered, were there preseason habits that this team had that the losers didn't have? And it turns out there were, and it was a surprising one. And what it was, was high fives, fist bumps, and pats on the back. Teams that win at the end of the season have the most high fives, fist bumps, and pats on the back at the beginning of the season. Why? Well, because these aren't just meaningless gestures. These gestures create trust and partnership. They create forward momentum. And so teams that were doing that frequent and early on built trust and partnership and forward momentum that carried them through to win the season. 
Now, the Wall Street Journal editors read about the study and were like, there's no way this is true. And then wrote a huge article after watching all the tapes and going, actually, this is true. Um, and so when you do that with yourself, you are creating trust and partnership with yourself and forward momentum sending you into the game of life every day. The other study that people love is the one with um, students in a classroom. And so researchers wanted to know if you gave students a really challenging problem to work through, what's the best way to motivate them to work harder, work longer, kind of push through the really challenging aspect of this. And so they tested three different um, types of encouragement. They divided these kids up into three groups. The first group, the researchers would walk over and simply uh, tell them something nice, like a compliment. And this is kind of why words of affirmation don't really work. You know, oh, you're really smart. Oh, you're doing a great job. Oh, mm. you know, I can see you're like, whatever. The second group, the researchers walked up and complimented the kids on their effort. Oh, I see you're trying really hard. Oh, I see you really working, you know, the growth versus the fixed mindset. The third group, this is where this gets interesting. The researchers walked up and didn't say a word. They just gave the kid as they're struggling through this challenge, a high five. Those kids that got a high five worked like outworked like 10 X the other groups. God. They worked longer. They worked for better result. And here's the most important part. They felt best about themselves compared to the other groups. Why? Well, the reason why is, again, because it's not just a gesture that's meaningless. What the high five communicated is, I see you. So a high five when somebody's struggling is, I see you're struggling and I'm here to encourage you. It says, I hear you. I hear that you're struggling. I'm here to encourage you. And it says, I believe in you, which is exactly what we all need to hear. This is why, by the way, we are incessant people pleasers. It's because we literally are looking for other people to see us, to tell us that they hear us and to tell us that they love us, like us, and believe in us. And I'm here to tell you that the best way to get that need that, that is so important fulfilled is to make it a habit to fill that need for yourself mm. every single morning by high-fiving yourself in the mirror. It reminds me of kind of something we were talking about earlier, which is just, you know, what am I trying to get from someone? And it was like, for me, I was trying, my, my whole dilemma was in relationship and I wanted to be chosen. Mm. And I realized in that want or need that my lesson was I was supposed to be giving it to myself. I was supposed to be choosing myself, which I didn't really know how to do. That usually requires you to leave somebody you're with. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, because the reality means that that probably the situation you're in is, is trying is a pattern. Mm -hmm. so we're trying to, you know, like in my experience, you know, I'm trying to correct the dad wound, right? I'm trying to, I'm thinking if I can correct the original wound where I wasn't enough and I was pushed really hard and hard on me and emotionally disconnected, if I can correct it with someone, then it's, oh, everything's okay, but it will never happen. These are just patterns to show you something that you're supposed to look within yourself for. 
are there like big aha moments for you um, that you can think of where it was like, man, that was it. That's the, that's where I was supposed to be doing the exact thing I wanted from somebody. Because I think to myself, like even with the high five, it's like a high five yourself. It's like, you could also high five other people too. Like, you know what I mean? When you're already doing that, you treat yourself is the way you treat other people. You treat everybody else way better than you treat yourself. So the issue is not high-fiving everybody else. The issue Mm -hmm. is being able to look yourself in the mirror and see a human being that's worthy of it. Mm -hmm. And if you struggle with shame or regret or your criticism is relentless, high-fiving yourself is going to feel weird because Mm -hmm. when you look in the mirror, you see somebody who doesn't deserve that. You see somebody who's made mistakes. You see the failure. You see the things you regret. And one of the reasons why high-fiving myself in the mirror and adding it as a habit that I start every single day with, I send myself into the game of life with that high-five. One of the reasons why it has been so transformative is because it is a tool that teaches me how, how to heal all the things that I need to heal. It is a tool that teaches me how to like myself as I am. Even if I didn't go to the gym, even if I drank a bottle of wine last night and I'm hungover and I said I wouldn't, even if I snapped at my kids, even if I didn't get through the to-dos, even if I still haven't reached my goals, I still look in the mirror and I see a person I like. I see a person I'm encouraging. I see a person who deserves that kind of support. And then I use the tool of the high five habit to give myself that support. And that has changed everything because when you like yourself, you don't need to seek it from somebody else. Like other people liking you is a bonus. If other people don't like you, it might sting a little bit, but it doesn't change the fact that you like yourself. And the reason why you can be sure that you like yourself is because your brain sees you treating yourself every morning with that high five in the mirror, like a person who likes themselves, treats themselves. Mm -hmm. Same thing with respect. The reason why people have tremendous difficulty with boundaries is because they don't respect themselves. They disrespect themselves all day long. So how on earth are they going to find the strength to have boundaries? Exactly. It begins with how you treat yourself in the mirror every morning. And then it builds out from there. If you treat yourself with respect, you will not allow somebody else to disrespect you, but we allow other people to disrespect us because we treat ourselves with disrespect. Yeah. You build it from the inside out. And so this has been the single greatest lesson of my life. Seriously, that being kind to yourself, being accepting and supportive of yourself is the superpower, is the source of motivation, is the source of confidence. And what I love about it is it's a tool. It costs nothing. (laughs) It works for everybody. Uh, There's tremendous science. Yeah. And um, it's free. 
I think I'd like to maybe wrap up by explaining boundaries. If somebody would have told me back in the day, like you're codependent, I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm super strong. I'm independent. I got it together. I make my own money. I buy my own houses. I would have never said I'm codependent because I didn't get what that meant. But learning more, it's like, oh yeah, maybe I was. A big reason is that I didn't, I didn't even know what a boundary was. Uh So could you explain how people could learn how to create boundaries and what they are? Yeah. So um, I like to use an example of an electric fence. So, you know, when we've got an Australian shepherd named Yolo and we live across the street from this farm outside of Boston and there's three dogs that are up across the street. And when Yolo was a puppy, oh my God, he, he like had the sonic hearing. This dog could hear when the door crossed the, the, the street. And we're talking like at least a quarter of a mile would crack open because he would bolt at our screen door, plow it open, run straight across the yard, jump over the stone wall, right across the street, which is on a blind corner, and then right up the driveway to the farm to go play with the dogs. And so we're like, we got to get an electric fence. Now, when they install an electric fence, they put in these little white perimeter flags. Mm -hmm. And here's what's interesting about the white flags. You want to think about white flags on an electric fence as a boundary. First of all, nobody knows it's there if there aren't the flags. And if you have a boundary, it's your responsibility to plant the white flags so that you know where the boundary is and so that the people in your life know where the boundary is. Because what I've noticed about the fence, because you know a lot of people then take the flags away, is that we didn't remove all of them. Because I noticed our dog, being an Australian shepherd, loves to whoa, 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 whoa. Like he doesn't bite or hurt people, but he loves to charge at people to announce their arrival. And if people were riding a horse down the street or walking down the street and our dog went running without the, the, the flags, they'd have a panic attack. But when you see... Mm the flags, you know, the point at which you're safe and they're safe. Mm -hmm. And ironically, that boundary, that fence, it's actually not for the people on the road. It's to keep YOLO okay. Your boundaries keep you okay and you safe. And your job is to figure out where to put those little flags so other people see them. And there's, there's, there's boundaries around stuff. There's boundaries around time. Mm. There's boundaries around topics Mm. and there's boundaries around people. And so Hmm. A boundary around stuff is one that I'm seeing expressed right now because both of our daughters are home, one of whom has graduated from college and the other who is a junior in college. And one of our daughters loves to borrow the other daughter's stuff. And they are different sizes. So it makes our one daughter bananas because she can't borrow as many things. And so she has exp- she's planted her white flag. And the white flag is this. You can only borrow my stuff if you ask and I give you permission. That's a boundary. Now, if her sister crosses it, she needs to enforce the boundary. You can no longer borrow my things. And if her sister crosses it again, she has to turn the voltage up on the fence and put a lock on her door. Time. 
Um, time boundaries are literally, no, I'm not available to help you paint your house on Saturday. I am available for one hour on Thursday morning if you need help. That's a time boundary. Topic boundaries. My weight is not up for discussion. I will come to uh, Christmas dinner, but not if we're talking politics. Mm-hmm. Same thing with boundaries with people. I'm not coming if Uncle Bob is there. I didn't think of it from so many different aspects, but I can see how thinking of them is important. Now, would you stress that <clears throat> it's important to the flags? Are those verbal flags? Because I think to myself, anything. if I were to if I were to establish a boundary verbally, let's say with a partner, I feel like that's like relationships always bring up the most crap, right? So, yeah. <clears throat> you know, the thought that you'd have is like, well, they're they might leave. Right. Like, I don't want to scare them off or leave. But really, the truth is, is that you're just saying subconsciously, I'd be thinking to myself, well, that just means that uh, like subconsciously, I think I'm not really worth it. Like, I'm not really worthy and I'm not good enough. Well, remember, these protect you. So when you express a boundary with a partner, what you're doing is you are empowering yourself to act like an adult in the relationship. Yeah. Instead mm-hmm. of having there be landmines all over the place emotionally where you get triggered and withdraw. Right. So I'll give you an example. So um, my husband recently came to me and expressed what you would call a boundary. We have we live in an old farmhouse and the garage is um, like at the lower level. So you kind of pull in, you can park up top or you can pull around underneath to the garage. And um, whenever we get packages, you obviously have boxes that arrive to the house, you have to carry them downstairs after you unpack the boxes from Amazon or wherever in order to get them into the recycling bins. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a habit of stacking up the boxes, empty boxes, like a giant tank, like Tango or whatever game it is, right at the top of the door to the stairway to the basement. And for years I've done this and my husband has never said anything. What he's done is he gets passive aggressive mm-hmm. where there'll be 11 boxes there. And then he's like ripping the tape off and like, like angrily, like slapping <laughs> the things down. And I'm like, why are you like that? You know, like, or you like throw the things down the stairs and or like pick them up in a huff. And finally he said to me, would you please take the boxes downstairs to the garage? Do not gather them at the top. And I said, why? I said, I'm gathering there so I don't have to make 15 trips. And I know you want them flat. I don't have time. And so I'm putting my, and he's like, no, I need you to hear me. I need you to stop doing it. It's a major boundary for me. And then he explained why, which was Mm. super helpful. Yeah. When I see that tower of cardboard boxes, it makes me feel like you think I'm the maid. It makes me think you're stacking that there for me to take care of. And it makes me feel like you don't care about me. And when you explain it that way, I'm like, oh my God, no problem. There will never be another box here. And there hasn't been because I understand. Yeah what he's working on and why this is important. And he incorporated feelings. Mm -hmm. 
he actually knows how he feels and he's communicating it. And communication is the most important thing. Whether we're talking about a boundary, the communication we have with ourselves in the mirror, or just how he feels when certain things are done that make him feel less than or yeah. <clears throat> triggered. And it's the communication that's so important. But without the self-awareness, you can't even get to the communication. So again, it comes back to you. Yeah, always. Wow. Look, I'm so excited to have this conversation. So many people, including myself, there's so much to learn. I'm going to start high-fiving myself in the mirror and I guarantee you, I'm going to probably feel a little silly. I'm like, okay, do I put a fingerprint on the mirror or not? And you. you know what? I'm going to do it every day with the fingerprint on the mirror. I'm totally up for the reprogramming of looking at myself and going, You'll be shocked. You're Let awesome. me know in five days what happens. You'll be yeah. shocked. Wow. Thanks, Mel. You're incredible. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. And all the good you do. I mean, you're <laughs> truly impressive. I just love listening to you. You're so clear and articulate and to the point, and uh, you help millions of people. Well, get to I a was really place. unhappy and screwed up and suffering for a really long time. And it took me many, many decades of suffering to have these simple epiphanies. And I think that's why I sound so clear and articulate because your life and problems can seem overwhelming. And we tend to make the mistake of thinking that that means the solution is, and it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. The larger the issue, the bigger, the struggle, the smaller, the solution that starts to change everything. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.